0: blog talk radio
1: glam more fear less diabetes late night i Hi Divas and Dudes, welcome to Di- Diabetes Late Night. I'm your host, Mr. Diva Bedek, and thank you for tuning in to our Wellness with a Wow podcast. Tonight we're, play- uh, we're talking about living with diabetes without regrets with musical inspiration from Edith Piaf, and I love that last song, I've been playing it all month long. <laughs> Now, if you have diabetes, you might have a very intimate relationship with regret because every bite, every bolus, and every momentary burnout can be an opportunity to make a decision you won't be happy with later. I'll be talking about that with my guests tonight, including poet Lorraine Brooks, Patricia Addie gentle Dr. Lori Shemick, Dr. Andrea Chisholm, and Cindy Liu from Diabetes What to Know Community. Throughout the podcast, we'll also be featuring the music from Edith Piaf's Top 40 Album, courtesy of Sony Music. Our diva inspiration was born in Paris in 1915 and became the voice of France. She began her singing career on the streets with no formal training, but her ability to sing from her heart soon enchanted audience, audiences beyond Paris. Why don't you take a minute to donate to DivaBetic as we roll out some more music and visit org. Your tax-deductible contributions are greatly appreciated. This past Sunday night with the Tony Awards and playwright Tony Kushner, who wrote Angels in America, which won Best re- re- Revival of a Play, gave a shout-out to Judy Garland's birthday, which is interesting because a lot of people compare our diva inspiration, Edith Piaf, with judy garland they were both petite women with very powerful voices well believe it or not edith piaf started her training in the circus because her father was in the circus and her mother was a street singer like her mother she started singing on the streets with the urging of her father and so that's how that wonderful legacy began here's another song from edith piaf courtesy of sony music let's listen
2: Vous asseoir à ma table, il fait si froid dehors Ici c'est confortable, laissez-vous faire, Milord Et prenez bien vos aises, vos peines sur mon cœur Et vos pieds sur une chaise, je vous connais, Milord Vous ne m'avez jamais vu. je ne suis qu'une fille du fort, Une ombre de la rue
1: Welcome back to the Late Night. I'm your host, Mr. Diva Bedek, and we're getting our diva inspiration from Edith Piaf. Well, tonight we're talking about no regrets. I have one. I forgot to mention that I worked on the original production of Angels in America back in in San Francisco. I was um, working with the Eureka Theater, and I got the job working backstage on that show with uh, Tony Award winners Stephen Spinella and Kathleen Shelfont, And Tony Kushner used to visit me all the time when I worked at Zuni Cafe because I was I had to be a waiter while I was working on that show. And he felt so humble that someone would get up that early and, and go to work and then come back and work so late at the theater for uh, Angels in America. It's amazing to see how long-lasting um, that show is and how powerful it still is to so many people. And if you get a chance to see it, while it's on Broadway, I urge you to do that. I also have a regret because last week, or two weeks ago, I didn't get to present my biggest diabetes outreach program of the year at Mosaic Central Farm Markets because of the weather, so I'm checking off that regret. We're rescheduling our Diabetes Awareness Day at Mosaic Central Farm Markets in Fairfax, Virginia, for Sunday, September 16th. Please help us spread the word and join us as we take over a farmer's market and present diabetes wellness. All right, well, it's time to meet my first guest. She's been on the program for several years as we go into our eighth year anniversary. I'd like to welcome to the show Lorraine Brooks. Hi, Lorraine. Hi, Max. Good evening. How are you? I'm good. Uh do you mind shutting the door for a minute?
0: No. Ooh, that was cool. sorry about that. that. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm posting out sound cues for our upcoming murder
1: mystery <laughs> podcast, One Wake, which will debut in September. I wanna I, I thought I'd share that with everyone to get the ball rolling. You were gonna join like, us I'm for the uh um, You were going to join us for the farmer's market, but you couldn't, so maybe you'll come back in September when we uh, restage that. Yeah, I was
3: sorry to see that it was um, canceled because of the rain, but, yeah, that gives me an opportunity uh, to be there this time, hopefully. Uh, It was such fun last year. I was looking forward to it, so um, I'm looking forward to it again.
1: Yeah, it's gonna, I think it'll be an, it's going to be a wonderful event. We're going to have uh, scent detection expert Debbie Kaye will be there. We're going to be doing food tours with Nadine Young, who's a registered dietitian, certified diabetes educator. And we're going to have a dog parade. So there's lots of things to do. Plus, I probably am creating a scavenger hunt. And we'll, I'll, I'll let people um, think about that. I'm sure I'll have that ready by September. Hmm. Anyhow, tonight our topic is regrets, and um, I thought rather than asking you about that, I would read uh, a comment from a message board that I saw about regrets and get your advice on it. Are you ready to take that challenge? Uh, Absolutely. Okay, so from the Diabetes Health website, F.I. Granny wrote, My biggest regret is that I did not stay committed to my diabetes and health as I did when I was first diagnosed. The first few years, I really took the time for myself to test often, eat on time, and be prepared. And then life intervened, and I started slowly to let it slip by the wayside. I allowed my family, my work, and my life to take priority over caring for myself. I now find that my needs are on the back uh, back burner. What do you say to that, Lorraine? That's kind of a common thing we we hear a lot at Diabetic, and I, I wanted to see what your advice would be on that.
3: Well, you know, I I think I I mean I understand it. Uh, it's it's um, it's sometimes a lot of uh, I don't want to use the word work, but you do, you do have to pay diabetes a lot of attention, and um, life does happen. But uh, I think the important thing is what she said at the end of of her note, which is. Um, you know, that life got in the way and she let herself get put on the back burner. I think you can't do that. You always have to keep yourself on the front burner. And you know that old saying that when you get on an airplane and the the, um, the oxygen masks fall down, you got to put on yours first so you can help other people. And and I think that's the best advice that I can give is that you can't do anything for anybody else until you take care of yourself first. So you always have to make yourself the priority even though it may sound selfish or feel selfish at times, um, there's really no other way uh, to do it. Um, you know, I, I, I I've been doing I mean, that for is, 35 years.
1: And the truth is that diabetes, in many respects, is something that could sneak up on you. Meaning, like for mm-hmm. specifically for people with type two diabetes, you can, for the first couple of years, kind of jockey back and forth with how uh, diligent you are with your Care, and then uh, you know, you may wake up down the road like this person, F.I. Granny, uh, several years down the road, having not really made it a priority and could experience a complication.
3: I totally agree, I totally agree. I think it's the same, uh, it's the same with type 1 too, but um, I think you always have to just be your own best advocate. I mean that that's what we basically talk about every month, isn't it? I mean, we have to we have to advocate for ourselves and we have to be our own best friends and ask for help when we need it and um that's what this journey is all about. It's about taking care of oneself and it's not selfish to do that in the least.
1: Well, it's also about standing up for yourself because shame and blame is unfortunately associated with uh, the diagnosis. And so sometimes uh, the regret is not really standing up for yourself because you might have uh, felt a little bit ashamed about something and um, you might associate a l- embarrassment with it. And so instead of making having that priority, you kind of uh, step back, and that's kind of what you wrote a little bit about tonight, right?
3: Um yeah, it sort of is. Um I think that uh, I think you're absolutely right. I think that you have to um you have to always be aware of of your own needs and I love Edith Piaf, by the way. I'm so glad you chose her today. Um but my and I do have a regret too. My regret is that I didn't study my French harder when I was in high school or I could have uh, I would have understood what she was singing about. But um, I I named my poem after the song, Je Ne Regrette Rien. I love that. Je Ne Regrette Rien, The the where, the why, and the when. If I have a need that is pressing, I never find that it's distressing, like pricking my finger for testing or foods that I may be ingesting. I do not regret when they stare or that I receive Medicare. I take stock of all of my needs and all that I need to proceed. Why regret what makes me feel better? Maybe it's me that's the trendsetter. I spend no time feeling regret or that some might think me heavy set. Life is too short for that worry, so I'll order that Indian curry. As long as I'm smart and stay mindful, There's no reason not to be prideful. Pick up your cares and remorse and stay on your self-caring course. Kick that regret to the curb and start living the life you deserve.
1: Amazing, Lorraine, and your French accent was brilliant too. But this poem really uh, addresses a lot of very common regrets that people have, and you do it always in such an artistic and playful way, and really get the message across. I do think I just want to point out one and get your uh, feeling on, because we talked quickly over email about it. But I think the mention of Medicare is really um, powerful, and I'm, I'm curious to know why you chose that.
3: Because I'm on Medicare. <laughs> Well, and also because people <laughs> associate something to that, I too, think right? That, well, I think that people, well, I mean, it means that you're over 65. So I think that sometimes, um, you know, people treat you differently. I don't think they mean to necessarily. But I think sometimes people treat you differently when they know that you're an older person. And um, I think that's unfortunate. You know, also Medicare itself is um, not always diabetes-friendly, there are a lot of things about Medicare that change uh, or things about coverage that change when you get Medicare. And um, I've had the uh, the the situation where I used to use the CGM system uh, with my old pump that I was using. And when I began to get Medicare, um, I had to – Medicare did not cover CGM. And it's just recently, it's only I think in the last three or four months that Medicare – has decided to cover CGM so I'm back on it but um it was for there was a period of about a year and a half when I wasn't able to use the CGM system and you know I, I I don't want to get political about it but I mean that's really I think kind of unfair and and dangerous for some people because as you get older I think you need more of these things not less and um so yeah Medicare itself is is a whole other ball game and I guess it can make some people feel a little bit more self-conscious. I, it doesn't make me feel that way, but
1: um, no, I love it. I love I have, and, You know, I, I think through your in. poetry, uh, you stick up for a lot of people. When people read your poems, it's like you're sticking up for them because there is this kind of overwhelming, uh, once again, this kind of shame, blame associated with the disease. And I think you know what I get from. Your poetry, and I think why it's so heartfelt and means so much to people, is because you're saying some of the things that they want to, they would want to say. Maybe giving them that boost of confidence that they could stand up for some of these things, like checking themselves in public, and not having to feel like they can't do that because they don't want to embarrass anyone else at the table, or um, you know, be unsightly to the other guests at a at a restaurant. I guess is what they would say.
3: Just the other day, I had the experience. Um, I was uh, somewhere where there was a person. That was having a low blood sugar episode, and the person that she was with went to get her something to eat or drink. And in the meantime, I said to her, "Do you want to test yourself?" And she looked at me a little oddly. And I said, "Yeah, I have a testing kit." And she said, "Oh, you're a diabetic." And I said, "Yeah." So I took out my testing kit and I let her use it. And she was so grateful, you know. Uh, and we both sat there in public on a on a uh, bench, and um, she tested her blood sugar, and it was like fifty something. So she knew that you know it was time for her to to take some action, and um, I don't. Neither one of us felt per- self conscious, and I don't think anybody was looking at us or, or noticed us one way or the other. So I think you have to get over some of those uh, feelings, you know, or, or else you you really won't take as good care of yourself as you should.
1: I absolutely agree, and so does our diva inspiration, Lorraine, because Edith Piaf famously said. Every damn thing you do in this life, you have to pay for. And that's the cliffhanger until we meet my next guest. But first, we're going to play some more of Edith Piaf's greatest hits. She was discovered in a night, by a nightclub owner who started her career and gave her the nickname The Little Sparrow, which comes from the fact that she was so petite. Here's another great song by Edith Piaf, courtesy of Sony Music.
2: Le
0: Welcome
2: back to Diabetes Late Night.
1: I'm your host, Mr. Deva Bedek. I'm on the verge of celebrating our eighth year of podcasting next month in July. I sure hope you join us. But first, my next guest is a radio show host, certified nutritionist, weight loss expert known as the Inflammation Terminator and the best-selling author of um, How to Fight Fat Inflammation and Fire Up Your Fat Burn. Please welcome back to the show Dr. Lori Schimmick. Hello, Dr. Lori.
4: Hello, Max so thank great to be here with you and your listeners.
1: Well, we love having you on the show cuz you always thank take you.
4: these
1: um you have a really wonderful way of taking the tough topics and making them understandable to me as well as well, my thank
0: listeners. You. And
1: thank you know, regret you. is so haunting. You just heard uh me quote Edith Piaf who on her deathbed I should've said said every damn thing you do in this life, you have to pay for. Well, she certainly uh had several um, demons in her own personal life uh, regarding mm-hmm. uh, substance mm-hmm. abuse and things like that. But for a lot of us, we, these small regrets can build and can create um, unhealthy mindsets or even outcomes. So I want to talk to you a little bit about regrets and get your, first sure. and foremost, get your definition on, on regret.
4: Yeah, I you know, it's interesting because regret, and we all know what it is, it's that feeling as if, you know, why did we do what we did? We could have done something different, and we, what we really want to do is change the past, right? So, um, the, you know, there are many people who literally suffer every day with regret. And the good news, though, that liberation from it is 100% Possible. Many people believe it's not, but it is, and so it's essential for everyone uh, for their well-being who experiences daily regret to let go of it. Because what what is happening is that you are living in the past. Essentially, you keep looking in that rearview mirror, and that's not the way to create. The life you love—it's not the way to really optimize your health, if you will. And so, um, you know, we know that you know physicians and health experts and friends and family can really do a lot of shaming. And especially uh, type two diabetes—it's at an all-time high, as we know. So it's interesting, though, that this all-time high of shaming is also coinciding with an all-time high of type 2 diabetes and you know it's easy to target folks who succumb to uh, a lifestyle disease and what many people do not know is that as this lifestyle disease if you will or this preventable disease has a genetic effect And it's different for one person or another. And if someone who chooses food, for example, packed with sugar, such as whole wheat bread, how many of us uh, choose whole wheat bread, right? Well, the majority of those uh, bread slices um, can raise your blood sugar as much as two tablespoons of sugar. And so there you go. There's the majority of food in our food supply that's Uh, manufactured process is very high in sugar, and it adds up. And so if people don't know that, then they're experiencing uh, potential guilt of uh, what's going on with their blood sugar, their potential regret for not knowing better. And I'm here to say that that's not even healthy for you, that you need to really just let it go. Because, you know, regret is a natural, universal human experience. And this is something to be very aware of, very important to know this. And and also to remember that it can go away. You can let it go away. And it's a natural part of being human. So what isn't normal, for example, are psychopaths who have no regret in their life, and that's how they're diagnosed is one of the things. So profound regret, it feels awful, it's painful, we've all been there. It starts with denial, that feeling of, you know, please make it go away. Then we become shocked and bewildered with the whole thing at our behavior. And then we move into um, what I call self-criticism, and uh, then the outcome typically is regret, and shame and guilt. And it becomes then this continual loop of what ifs, coulda, shoulda, woulda, and you know where I'm going with that, right?
1: Absolutely. Well, I, you know, this is interesting to me because um, last month we had the PCO diva, PCOS diva on Amy Medline, and she mentioned how um, when she, she was really suffering with PCOS, that Mm -hmm. she started, like, a restrictive diet. And so she would – she specifically, she went – the one moment that stands out that she spoke about on the podcast was she went to a restaurant with her husband, and uh, they went to order, and so she ordered a common entree and started making all these substitutions, which I assume irked the waitress because after the waitress left, her husband said – you're a diva, which is when PCOS diva jumped into her head. Now, I feel like going back to wow. Lorraine's poem, a lot mm-hmm. of this is about, like, if you're the, if you're the one who's becoming health conscious uh, for any reason, not just because you're, being, you're diagnosed with diabetes, you might be diagnosed with prediabetes, but if you're the only one in your family or if you're the only woman at your bridge club or you're the only coworker who is watching and being mindful of um, your diet, you could in many ways seem like uh, you're making waves because all the other women at the Real Housewives of New Jersey roll their eyes at you, Dr. Laurie, when you say, I want the dressing on the side.
4: Right, <laughs> and I've been <laughs> and there. So you
1: don't do it because you <laughs> I don't, really you know, have. right?
4: Yeah. <laughs> right, yeah. It's, you know, and it's, it's something that you need to take, you, you need to, own it and be a part and feel good about what you're doing with your life, knowing that every healthy decision that you make is moving you uh, more towards optimizing your health, okay? Um, You know, it's it's easy for people to look at people who are looking like divas or making different choices than the, the standard folk, but It's something that needs to be done if we want to live our best quality of life. And the other thing that needs to be done is to not look at the past and take comfort, as I mentioned, you know, that it's part of the human experience, that um, if you're okay with it now, uh, that you know that, you know, a period of time needs to pass before you begin to heal, and this will allow you to let go. So if you... Start regretting foods that you make, even on a daily basis. It's really important to know that. And I tell people that our food, our health is just one bite away. So if you feel that you didn't make the best health choice, your last meal, we have another chance to do it. And that's the thing. And so, so many people throw their hands up in the air and they give up because it seems so overwhelming. They messed up, their blood sugar's not right. I know that my own mother um, had a rough time with her health and eventually died at a very young age. But she felt like this was her lot in life. This was the hand she was dealt. And uh, she never tried to make a difference. And so, I think it's really important for people to know that they have real control in the outcome of their health, especially with diabetes.
1: Is that what really motivated you to do what you do as your mom? And that I mean it, that, that yes. was our, very powerful. If I saw that, if I
0: grew up
4: around yes, that. Yes, absolutely. Yes, she was my motivator for sure because I was a young girl. When she passed away, I was 17, and, um, you know, I saw exactly what I said, her go through a myriad of different health conditions, never feeling as if she had control, but she did. She had a lot of different choices that she could have made, and um, so that's what motivated me to help others realize that they have control, that they do have choice in life, and that's very important,
1: And not just to judge, but to participate by making those actions your own as well, just not those thoughts. Okay, so I thought we would put this in real-life terminology. I went to the Mm -hmm. message board. I have a couple questions for you so we could see how you would answer this and what advice Mm -hmm. you would give for overcoming regrets. Um, The first question comes from Bliss Cheese. This is off the Spark People message board. I was diagnosed as a pre-diabetic a few years ago. My sister and best friend both have diabetes, and they did everything they could to serve as a cautionary tale. However, somehow I still managed not to take their advice, and today I'm living with full-blown type 2 diabetes. What can I do?
4: Well, the good news is that you can reverse it. Okay, a lot of people uh, do not believe that, but we now have research that's coming in just uh, recently, in fact, in February, showing that uh, it was a study done with um, from Verda Health. I don't know if you're familiar with them, but they took a group of participants. Half the people got off their insulin and reversed their diabetes. They're no longer taking insulin. And the other half, this is 100% now, were were able to reduce markedly their insulin. So it is possible, and with a, and if you do it the right way. So a ketogenic-type diet is your best friend when it comes to reversing diabetes, type 2.
1: Well, what about the I told you so? Because this man or woman is surrounded by two people who are saying I told you so. So every time I have a hard time getting out of bed to go for that jog with you and the other I told you so, every time I want to have the cheesecake when you order the carrots I'm just making things up what, you know you know what I'm saying what about right because I mean, right now she, ha- she or, he or she has a sister and best friend who, I, who told her so or him so and still they have diabetes how do you get past that you know because that, that would right I mean we, we, can, we don't know well, exactly what what those other people are thinking but let's just assume for the, for the moment the worst.
4: Yes, uh the this the first step is acknowledging where you are, okay? Yes, I have diabetes and yes, they were they were I was forewarned, okay? And that's where you go with that. From that point forward, you make different choices with your health and stop living in the past. Start living now. And if it's if it's a daily if they're literally taunting you with that, that's a whole different story.
1: Okay, and here's our second question. Mm -hmm. Um, It's from 200 pounds too heavy on Spark People's message board. I'm also pre-diabetic, and I was diagnosed in June 2011. Even though the nurse practitioner told me I had to lose at least 15 pounds to get it under control, I was still very scared. So I tried going on a diet to lose weight. At first, I lost 10 pounds over the summer. But then I fell off the wagon and gained 10 pounds back and have even gained more where I am today. Not surprisingly, my labs just came back and my numbers are higher than they ever were before. What do I do?
4: Well, she so you see needs this to... a
1: lot, regret about right. diet not working. Because I mean, right. you write a lot about this, you appear on shows about this. So how do how, how someone out there wants to make a healthy behavior, summer's like a big time when this all happens, how do they get back into that uh, trying again? if they. If,
4: it's you it's literally like putting yourself in that space, okay, and uh, it, realizing that you were successful at one time and you can be successful again, and that... You need, possibly your hormone levels have changed and you need to have that evaluated, Um, but you definitely need to start again and you need to be uh, in the mindset of somebody who is successful because, again, you're in control in the end. The food does not control you. It's the other way around, always. Always.
1: And when do you do that? Do you wake up the next morning and say, I'm going to start all over again? Do you start right there, wherever you are, whether it's I, 1 o'clock in the afternoon, uh, 5 o'clock in the evening, 11 o'clock at night? Like, when do you mm-hmm. really just uh, put, you know, put metal to the pedal, so to speak?
0: Or the pedal I to the
4: always metal? tell people to, uh, at the very next meal, the very next bite, in fact, to start make different choices. When you do that, you empower yourself. And many people feel disempowered because, again, they give up. You know, their numbers are up. They're not. They're not. Uh, they feel like they're doing things right, and that's why it's very important to definitely seek outside help in terms of uh, somebody who can set you in the right direction, give you. Uh, knowledge you know there are a lot of people as I mentioned about the whole wheat bread that think they're doing the right thing when in fact uh, they're setting themselves up for disaster so again hormones could be an issue and have changed and trying new ways of uh, eating such as the ketogenic diet or intermittent fasting would be of great benefit Dr.
1: Laurie it's time for the hot tea question
4: uh oh! Should I be scared?
1: I just love that scared. sound effect. Okay, so yes, you should be. No, you should be. Oh, it's no. time for our hot question in honor of our eighth an, eighth year anniversary podcasting coming up. You recently appeared on the TV show The Doctors to discuss the concept of intermediate intermittent inter- fasting. <laughs> What is it? How do you pronounce it? And I understand part of this goes back to should I or shouldn't I eat breakfast in the morning?
4: Right. So uh, intermittent fasting is really a pattern of eating. It's not a diet per se. Uh, ideally, I like to put my clients on, you know, food that is going to camp down on that insulin bump, okay, Uh, But it's essentially you are eating, you have an eight-hour window of eating, and you're fasting for 16 hours. And so if you simply eat your last meal, say, at 8 o'clock at night, and you don't eat again until noon the next day, your lunch, there you go. And it's easy to do it that way because you are uh, sleeping through most of that fast, okay? Okay. And many people don't realize that they naturally fast and produce ketones, which are very important to in helping uh, people with diabetes while they sleep. But the problem is it's not long enough really to have a market effect. So when you get to that sweet spot of 16 hours, really 14 to 16 hours, you're not only creating weight loss, you're optimizing cell health, mitochondrial health, which is a very important component to overall health. Um, your, your cells do a cellular house cleaning, if you will. Your digestive system rests. So everything cellular uh, is being repaired and renewed. And that's a really important point, especially when you're living with a disease that has inflammatory roots. Okay, so in, uh, intermittent fasting, is an excellent way to really tamp down on low-level inflammation in the body and the ketogenic diet, too.
1: I love it. All right, well, they can find out more at your website. Tell everyone uh, right. your website and definitely uh, mention fight how to fight fl- fat flammation.
4: Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Uh, my website is Shemick com l o r i Shemek.com. and I have lots of healthy information if you're interested. I'm on Twitter at lori shemek, and I have a Facebook page, Dr. Lori Shemek, with lots of healthy tips everywhere. So, and if you need to get if you need to contact me, please do. I'd be more than happy to direct you to where you need to go. And and if you do have diabetes, check out Verda Health. They, I have no affiliation with them, but they are really having great success with people.
1: Great. Well, thank you so much for being a part of the show tonight.
4: Thank you for having me. Take care, Max.
1: All right. Well, one of the biggest regrets some of our listeners have are the questions they don't ask their doctor before they leave the office. How about the gynecologist? We'll be talking about that next. But first, our diva inspiration, Edith Piaf, overcame much tragedy in her life, including the death of her daughter at the age of two when she was only 17 which probably inspired the emotion she evokes in many of her popular ballads. Here's another wonderful song from our diva inspiration, Edith Piaf, courtesy of Sony
0: Music. Let's listen.
2: Tu me fais tourner la tête Mon manège à moi c'est toi Je suis toujours à la fête Quand tu me tiens dans tes bras Ronde pour m'étourdir autant que toi.
1: Welcome back to Diaries Late Night. I'm your host, Sister Diva Bedek. Hey, if you want to take a quick vacation, I say pick up that Edith Piaf record and put it on. It's such a lovely, transportive moment. I, I really have to say, listening to the, this album, Edith P. Off, Top 40. All month long has just been so much fun, and I think you truly will enjoy it. Anyhow, welcome back to Diabetes Late Night. I'm your host, Mr. David Bedrick, and that's a quick tip on how to enjoy music in your life. Um, Going to gynecologists, though, is an essential part of a woman's health, but it also, I'm told, could be one of the weirdest, which is why uh, no wonder why so many women feel too embarrassed to talk to their doctors about the biggest concerns before they leave the office, which results in regrets. Which is why I thought I'd take another trip to the gynecologist with my favorite gynecologist, Doctor Andrea. Hi, Doctor Andrea. Hi, Max. I guess I I want to find the clapping. I don't know if I'm going to have it because I'm going all the way to Wyoming. You're going
5: all the way to Wyoming. You relocated. How do you like the Wild Wild West? I am really happy in the wild, wild west. It's, you know, really, first of all, it's amazingly beautiful. I'm This time of year I'm starting to miss a little bit the ocean and uh, lobster, not having ever lived more than about three miles from the ocean. Um, but the mountains here are just unbelievably gorgeous and wonderful, and um, I have really found a nice little... Practice environment for myself, it's what I was hoping to do to kind of get back to a little bit more kind of grassroots community based closer to patients um, It's kind of like being the doctor in northern exposure. It's kind of neat
1: it sounds like it that's that's wonderful so what is the uh, who who makes up primarily your patient population in terms of uh
5: ethnicity
1: and age? I'm just curious
5: very white. <laughs> Okay. Um there's minimal 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 ethnic diversity now which is completely the polar opposite from where I was in Cambridge. Um it's uh you know very 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 Anglo out here. Uh um I will have a few uh Hisp- women of Hispanic descent mostly you know from uh prior Mexican families. Um, I have a a couple stray Brazilians that have found their way over here. Um, I don't really have any African American, um, patients at all, period, none actually. Um, which is again, a little strange and off-putting and different, but, um, I think it's, you know, it is what it is, right? <laughs>
1: Absolutely. Yeah. No, that's, yeah. I, I would think that would be a little yeah. bit disconcerting. But, again, like based on where you are, I guess it's not that uncommon. All right. Well, I wanted to get right into this topic of no regrets. I reached out to you because I think one of the biggest regrets we're hearing about right now is that sexually transmitted diseases have reached a record high in the United States starting in 2015. That's according to the mm-hmm. U.S. Census of disease control and prevention, and obviously talking about a sexually transmitted disease or sexually transmitted uh, infection, which I'll ask you to define what those two terms are and why they're different, uh, can be embarrassing and can lead to regret if it's not treated. So first, Mm -hmm. um, what is the difference between an STD and an STI?
5: There's really no difference. It's just in the naming. Um, I think that the that the we've we've switched over to be be more sexually transmitted infection instead of disease because disease is a little feels a little bit more labeling and maybe a little bit more shaming than infection.
1: Okay, and um, what can STIs or STDs affect uh, body parts besides the genitalia?
5: Um, they can. I mean, one of the one in particular that we that we, we we think about um, uh, the two that we really think about affecting other other body parts are um, HPV, so human papillomavirus, or HSV, which is uh, herpes simplex virus. Um, as far as the the, the either of those uh, infections can be uh, transmitted by oral sex. So we can see um, those symptoms in the oral area. So, for instance, it's possible for someone to herpes comes in two two types. Most of us all have immunity, have been exposed to the cold, cold sore causing herpes, um, but that can end up on the genital tract. But the typical type two or genital herpes, which tends to be a little bit more aggressive, a little bit more symptomatic, a little bit more frequent outbreaks, can actually end up in the oral on the oral pharyngeal membranes as well. Um, human papillomavirus, which is the genital warts or the for in women, what we worry about—the uh, co-causer of or, or main cause of cervical cancer—can end up in the oral pharyngeal pathways and uh, in the throat, and can actually lead to um, the potential for, for throat cancer. HPV can also get in the rectum um, from anal intercourse, so that are obviously orally is from oral-genital sex, but anally from um, anal sex, and can end up in anal cancer, which is, uh, you know, unfortunately, what took. Um, the beautiful Farrah Fawcett away from us all too young.
1: Right. Now, um, a lot of these uh, diseases or infections aren't easily – I mean, you don't realize you have them before they're diagnosed. So how and, –
5: And and that – yeah, and that's – that's causes definitely, sorry Max symptom,
1: that, right? The signs and the symptoms yep. might be not always so obvious.
0: So they
1: may how, not always I mean, be so obvious. I mean, mm-hmm. Yeah, so how does someone overcome that? Because I do think this would be a hard – this would be a hard topic to discuss with your doctor, especially if you haven't really talked about it at home with anyone or you've heard your best friends or your friends talking about it and, um, or talk about sex. No one really talks about STIs or STDs. And at some point I still think there's quite a bit of stigma associated with them as far as you being loose or slutty or whatever the term of choice would be around
5: that. <laughs> Well, there is, and I also think that you know, as gynecologists, we probably don't do such a great idea, a great job all the time about inquiring about women's you know sexual histories. I mean, you're not going to be forthcoming about it, but if your gynecologist asks you the appropriate questions, you tend, will tend to open up a bit. We tend to think about you know screening for ST, STIs, STDs as more of a more of an issue amongst amongst young women, um, specifically you know 20, 20 year olds, early 30 year old, you know early 30 year olds, or women who are in their you know 30s and 40s very very sexually active, may have multiple partners, those are the women that we're going to be screening more often, especially for the major one that doesn't cause any symptoms, which is chlamydia. Um... Uh, most women are sort of inherently screened for human papillomavirus with their um, Pap smear screening, so that's one that you know is going to get screened for uh, regardless, at least in the in the genital area and on the cervix. Herpes is usually fairly symptomatic, um, and usually uh, that is something that you know would present you with a, enough of a symptom that you would you know potentially seek medical care for. But what we're seeing, you know, we're seeing a, a definite rise of STDs, especially in in um, you know women women over forty you know back in the back in the day where you know you just sort of think that you sort of start to become you know not a sexual being in your in your menopausal years you know women women nowadays as aging are sort of grabbing menopause by the horns and just saying, you know this doesn't mean my life is over, this doesn't mean my sexual life is over and you know coupling that with the fact that um, there's higher midlife divorce rate going on, so there's more you know more more people changing partners in their 40s fifties and sixties and Women in their 40s, 50s, or 60s—one of the liberating things about being able to, you know, being sexually active in your later years is that you don't have to worry about pregnancy. But partially, that decreases the use of condoms, which also increases your risk of exposure to STDs and STIs. So it's it's important for women, especially as as we're getting older and we are sexually active again with new partners, that you do let your gynecologist know that because you 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 should be you should potentially be screened for for a sexually sexually transmitted infections, even though it's sort of out of the typical recommendation guidelines, because those guidelines don't really look at the fact that women may be having new partners later in life.
1: I love it. And now I wanted to ask you, though, about the whole thing about being on the pill. A lot of women, I would assume, think that if they're on the pill, it's going to stop them from getting an STD.
5: Yeah, that's absolutely false. Um, condom use, barrier method use, so either female condom, male condom are really the only things that are going to be even potentially protect you from sexually transmitted infections. And with that, they really only protect you from a few, chlamydia, gonorrhea, you know, potentially trichomonas which is a vaginal parasite that can cause a very foul vaginal odor and discharge and irritation. But because of the way that herpes is spread and, and human papillomavirus condom use may slightly decrease your risk of transmission or acquisition, but it doesn't. It certainly doesn't um, uh, affect it that, that profoundly. So, you know, just, having, just the fact of having intercourse does put you at risk for exposure to, you know, these, these sexually transmitted infections. Now, the Good new I mean, the the good news with this is that for the most part, um, most sexually transmitted infections, you know, with the exception of you know hepatitis B and HIV, are, are become a little bit more of a nuisance, especially when you're out of your reproductive years. You know, we worry about chlamydia and gonorrhea causing problems in terms of. Um, uh uh fertility issues injuring fallopian tubes damaging fallopian tubes so pregnancy can occur um giving you bad pelvic infections uh, that can affect your fertility um nothing's really truly life threatening as, as we as we as we as we as we move on with these other STD, STDs. so it, it that that at least is you know one 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 piece of the positive but um you know they they can they can cause you know is, you know significant issues and like you said an embarrassment and you know the potential for having to disclose uh with new partners and that sort of thing which is you know socially socially awkward Well,
1: i, I even think like just carrying around a packet of condoms you know people would have you know going to a store as a woman and buying a pack of condoms would have would be associated with some kind of like shame or embarrassment, and the truth be told, oh, sure. you're culturally, just out for oh. yourself.
5: Absolutely, I mean, culturally, for sure. I mean, I have I have condoms that I slip to my teenagers because you know, the thing that I always say to my teenagers is, listen, you know, most m- most men are going to not carry a condom because they're they're not the most pleasant thing to use, and they're not necessarily going to want to use them, and you have to act like it's an like it's an admission ticket. <laughs> You know, you're the only right, one looking out is, for yourself. Is, you're the only one protecting huge.
1: yourself. This is a big deal because I'm sure you've met uh, through your your um, your practice over the years women who have regretted not taking uh, action to either prevent an STD or even letting it go longer by kind of hoping it, wishing it away. Right? Because I mean, Absolutely. some of this could have yeah. major impact on. So many women want to have babies that this could actually. Uh, some of these could have outcomes on miscarriages, right, or stillbirths.
5: Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, I can't tell you the number of the number of young number of women who I have who have had you know, un, un, didn't use condoms when they were teenagers, ended up with chlamydia and gonorrhea, and now have tubal factor infertility. And they their ovaries are fine, their uterus is fine, but their fallopian tubes are blocked so they can't get pregnant without some sort of assisted reproductive technology, and that is a huge regret for women, for sure.
1: Wow. So, I mean, the best advice is to um, not be embarrassed. And do you have any uh, websites that you recommend? Because I feel like if these people don't feel they have, these women don't have opportunity to talk about it in their home or their school, and they only rely on their gynecologist, they could be, that could work, but it might be nice to refer them to somewhere else to get information.
5: There's a there's a there's a, a great website that's sort of directed towards younger women called About Alice, and it's put out by Columbia University, which I really like. There's not a whole lot of great resources that I'm aware of for for you know mature women. <laughs> um, I mean, the CDC does do a good job of putting out information. I mean, it's a it's quite clinical and it's not quite as um, you know qu- quite as consumer patient. Friendly, um, but it does but it is a very reliable, very accurate, very good resource, um, you know, looking at you know symptoms and, and exposures and and that sort of thing.
1: Great. all right, well in, in honor of our eighth anniversary, Dr. Andrea time to go in the hot seat. you're right on the fire truck. Um, <laughs> Brad, here's our final question for you. A new study published in the New England Study of of Medicine suggests that women with breast cancer May be able to avoid chemotherapy.
5: Mm-hmm. Uh, how
1: do you feel mm-hmm. about this uh, so, study? Have you, know, you heard about it? And what do you I want did, to share? I did.
5: I did. Sure. Sure. I mean, I think that that par- partially, partially, what we have to look at is that we are, um, we're, we're really uh, with our screening, our mammography, our MRIs, our three D mammograms. We are really aggressively identifying early breast cancer, and. Like screening for cervical cancer, and like all of the how we sort of dial back a little bit on some of our treatment and how aggressive we are in precancerous and early cancerous lesions of the cervix because we understand the biology of things, we're sort of starting to understand that a little bit better about breast cancer. And for some breast cancers that are early and that are hormone, re- hormone receptive, so positive estrogen and progesterone receptors, what, 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 the, what the experts are actually finding is. That some of those cancers actually respond much better, or as well as as well as um, uh, their response to chemotherapy, they respond to respond to the, the hormone the hormone medications, the medications that shut down those hormone receptors. So um, I don't know if that quite made sense, but what what they're what they're finding is that th- that these early hormone sensitive tumors um, are are treated just as well from medications that have less side effects as the chemotherapy does. I mean, the chemotherapy really, you you literally are poisoning your body, while you're poisoning the cancer cells and there's a lot of you know potential uh, side effects long-term consequences of the chemotherapy agents and that actually for some women just using the aromatase inhibitors just like the anti-hormone medications that really drop your body's hormone levels are are just as effective and so it's actually really really great news
1: No, I think it is, but the issue that comes up that I want to ask you in closing is that since you are a doctor, you know, you hear about this information. You go to your bridge club, and your partner or someone tells you um, about how their daughter or their cousin or their sister had breast cancer, and they they. Thought uh, they sought um, alternative treatments. I mean, the way mm-hmm. I read this is that most people just think chemotherapy is the only thing available. There's other options out there. So you, unfortunately, get diagnosed with breast cancer and you don't want to do chemotherapy. You have this regret for not taking action and standing up for yourself. And the question I have posed to you is like, how how can women uh, be more forthright and stand up to their doctors? Because this is a big issue for people. To you know, we always advocate. For people to be healthcare advocates, but there's a little bit of tension and um, not feeling you're polite when you talk back to your doctor or you insist on a different uh, diagnosis, a different treatment course than the, than the doctor has told you.
5: So I say if you have a physician who's not going to support your autonomy, after that physician has had a chance to sort of voice their their side of the story, you know, and that they're very respectful and tell you, you know, sort of the indications and why they think this is the right thing to do and all of that and, and, and allow you to sort of be in the shared decision-making process. If you have a physician who's not willing to sort of entertain what your, um, what your desires are and they're acting more punishing towards you, then you need to get a second opinion and you need to see another physician.
1: Thank you. I hope everyone listening heard that because I think it's so important to know that someone in the medical profession is also encouraging you to take action for yourself. So I appreciate that, Dr. Andrea. I look forward to having you back on the show when I go back to the gynecologist. And in the meantime, enjoy Wyoming.
5: <laughs> Thank you, Max. It's nice to talk to you.
1: You too. All right, All right. Coming thanks. up, we're going to hear from uh, Cindy Lou from the Diabetes What to Know community because many people with type 2 diabetes say they're surprised, afraid, and regretful when they experience the first signs of diabetes complications. How about you? But first, let's tune into more music from our diva inspiration, Edith Piaf, who was denied a funeral mass by the Roman Catholic Archbishop of Paris because of her lifestyle choices. However, her funeral procession was followed by tens of thousands of mourners, and it was the first time since the end of World War II that the traffic stopped in Paris. More music coming up from Edith Piaf, courtesy of Sony
0: Music. Let's listen.
2: Je revois la ville en fête et en délire, suffocant sous le soleil et sous la
0: joie.
2: j'entends dans la musique les les rires. Et la foule vient me jeter en
0: Welcome
1: back to Diving's Late Night. I'm your host, Mr. Diva Bettick, and I just threw my beret up in the air like Mary Tyler Moore. Because I'm getting ready to welcome one of my favorite divas. Please welcome to the show Cindy Lou. Hi, Cindy Lou. Hi, You know, when I said I wanted to do a show on no regrets, I immediately thought of you and wanted to have you on the show because I feel like you're someone who uh, is living with diabetes with no regrets. So, can you uh, share a little bit of your story and your journey uh, with our audience? Because I do find you so inspiration,
6: inspirational and motivational. Oh, thank you. I was diagnosed three years ago on my birthday and I really the first three months didn't know what I was doing at all and did the best I could but after that I saw a dietitian and I talked to you and now I have them a full life. It's like I found my purpose in life through diabetes and I'm just so thankful for everybody that I have met the dietitians for you. For the great doctors and for the people from our website, Diabetes What to Know, uh, I've had more opportunities because of this diagnosis than I ever had before. And I certainly don't have any regrets because it was the wake-up call I needed to take control of my health. And I'm three years med-free now and still rolling.
1: I love it, and I'm so grateful, and I'm sure everyone else is for all the motivation and support you provide uh, people because you really do outreach to tens of thousands of people through the Dive's What to Know website and community on Facebook. Um, you heard me mention surprise, fear, and regret. Uh, people experience when they're first diagnosed or when they experience a complication. Has that? Have you experienced that in in your work with the community? Have you seen people kind of fall into those categories?
6: Oh, I think when we're diagnosed, all of us are scared to death. I think we feel guilty. We feel like it's somehow our fault that this happened, and we see that over and over in the support groups. Uh, they come to us not knowing what to do, not feeling hopeless and the first thing we do in the group is assure them that this is not your fault I don't care what Uncle Sammy said or your mama or what you're telling yourself it's not your fault if you don't have the gene for it you're not going to get it so it's not what you ate it's not that you said too much and we, we like as a group to keep things very very positive we find that that spurs people on to get the education they need and on how to manage and I love it. you
1: you do. you have this wonderful habit of asking people to post their uh, fasting blood sugars in the morning. I want to know uh, I want to go behind that and find out what the reason is and and um, what the reaction is from people.
6: Most people in the group take part in that, and on the beginning, they're very self-conscious, but we make sure that when they post that 350 or whatever that high number is against our lower numbers, that we assure them that we've been there, you're doing good, keep on with what you're doing, it will come down. And, again, just keeping it positive, positive. Some people won't post. They're very personal about their numbers. To me, posting that fasting every morning keeps you honest. It lets you see your progress. It lets other people uh, cheer you on when you're trying to come down. But most of all, it just keeps us honest in our management.
1: Okay. Now let's talk about some specific stories because I'm sure you've had a few people who haven't taken to it as quickly as you have. So, Uh, share a little bit about the diabetes what to know community. Is there anyone who pops out to you who might have struggled at first maybe with the regret of experiencing multiple high blood sugars or uh, embarrassment from maybe even being diagnosed to uh, ultimate or maybe was regretful of the number they saw on the scale and so uh, took action and has had a healthy outcome because of it?
6: We have a lot of rock stars in our group. We really do. Um, One that comes to mind Is Jane from Canada Jane was an office worker She's a computer person She builds programs I think is what she does I try not to get too personal with people But from things she shared I think she built programs And she was at a desk a lot And she was heavy And didn't move a lot She's a very interesting person And was active in her own way But they were not Exercise type active And Jane, when she was diagnosed, came to us and started working. And and like so many people was, uh, can I do this? Can I do this? I don't think I can do this. But now she took the running classes from Diabetes Canada, and she went from a behind-the-desk person to a marathon runner. She runs marathons about 10 times a year, and she wins sometimes in her category. But She was 59 when she was diagnosed, and she's 63 now and running marathons like a wild woman. And then we have another guy named Nick that is a cyclist, and he rides 40 miles a day pretty much. And, I mean, they are our superstars. I'm, I'm not athletic like they are, and many people in the groups aren't. But those two particularly stand out for me because they took one lifestyle and shifted it totally in another direction. And and many of our people do. I mean, my direction is very different to what it was when I was diagnosed, but these people just stand out to me. We also have a guy named Rick from Oregon who uh, runs a gym, and he trains other people. And so he was active anyway. But he has really ramped it up with his diet and figured out everything in grams, if you can imagine that. He, we get tickled at him because we eat in ounces or we eat in a half-cup serving size. That man measures everything to the gram. He, he's awesome. And they
1: start to see – the thing about this, and, I, and I'm wondering if you would agree with this, is it's the small steps become habits be, and – suddenly you're doing it without really thinking about it, right? Because I know for a lot of listeners out there, they are being inspired, but they're also thinking in the back of their mind they might have a hesitation because this is overwhelming. I don't know, I don't know if I can make this commitment. And, and what do you say to that?
6: I just say you've got to start with baby steps. You have to start somewhere. And one thing that becomes a habit grows into two things. And pretty soon in a few weeks you're doing this without it being so stressful. And that's, that's what we tell people when they come to the group. This is just healthy eating. It's not a diet for life. You're not going to starve. Diabetes control is not about going hungry. It's just about a shift in how you look at food and starting to use whole foods instead of processed things. And the, one of the big things we see is, what's my family going to eat? How can I cook for me and cook for my family? Well, excuse mm-hmm. me. We're going to teach our family to eat healthy, too, because chances are they're carrying the gene. So we it's just a gradual shift, and it's still good food. We have a Pinterest page with recipes that are really tasty, and people that didn't cook learn to cook even in their own way with steamed bags of vegetables and simple things. I mean, we help people. It's like, I bought a roast. How do I cook it? We tell them. Our group members are so helpful about telling people how to prepare things and how to manage. So well, that's the final question. We- it's
1: this idea that I know a lot of people say, "I wish I knew sooner," because and I think that stems from there's a hesitation to di- to join a diabetes community because you don't want to be on that team. Um, so talk from that thing. Did you have any hesitation about being in the diabetes community? And if you haven't, have you heard that mentioned from some of the people who are in your community? who ultimately turned it around and actually now love the community because of the support, encouragement, and education they got?
6: I had no hesitation. In fact, I started the support group on my own. Uh, I found Ansley and diabetes, what to know later on. But I had already started the support group, and we we incorporated the support groups into her website. But, I wanted people to talk to. I wanted to learn. I wanted to know what they were experiencing. But I tell everybody, you've got to own your diabetes and take charge of it. And it's hard to put your personal self out on the page. I know that. But if you don't do that, you're going to experience complications. You're not going to learn what you need to and it's the same thing with dietitians. We see our people fight going to the dietitian. They don't want to go to the dietitian and have a frank conversation. And healthy eating classes work a whole lot better with people we have seen in the groups than a one-on-one dietitian appointment. I think I think dietitians are very, very important, and I encourage everyone to see, see a dietitian. But I think with type 2 in particular, healthy eating classes in a group setting help people open up.
1: Right, more real-life conversation around
6: it. Right. I think I think, the, I think the, they will say, good. well, I don't think I can do this in a group because they're going to hear right. feedback from other people that say, me too, you know, <laughs> and that's the beauty of this group. We have the, the I can't do this, me too group that come along little by little, and then we have the others that are superstars and just Say okay, this is going to change, and they change it all at once.
1: I love it, and I, I want to thank you for being on the show, and I wanted uh, to partner you with Edith Piaf because she was she had such a powerful voice, and also she expressed emotion, and you could just hear it in your voice. And I read your comments that you um, send to the members of the group because I'm a member too, and I just appreciate everything you do and the per, how you personalize and support them in such a great way. So I want to honor you and just tell you thank you, thank you for being on the show, and thank you for all you do. And this next song by Edith Piaf, we're going to dedicate to you. So here's another wonderful song by Edith Piaf, courtesy of Sony Music, dedicated to Cindy Liu from the Diabetes What to Know community.
2: Sous le ciel de Paris s'envole une chanson. Elle est née d'aujourd'hui dans le cœur d'un garçon. Sous le ciel de Paris marchent des amoureux. Leur bonheur se concentre.
1: Welcome back to Diabetes Late Night. I'm your host, Mr. Diva Bedek. TV chef and cookbook author Paula Dean said she had no regrets when she announced that she had type 2 diabetes a few years back, but that didn't stop the general public for blaming and shaming her for having the disease. How about you? Do you feel like you're to blame for being diagnosed with type 2 diabetes or developing type 1 diabetes? Joining me to talk more about living diabetes life with no regrets is the one and only Patricia Addy-Gentle. Hello, Patricia. Hi, Matt. Thank you for joining us tonight. Hi
7: there. Thanks for having me.
1: You know, many people with diabetes struggle with accepting their diagnosis because they regret uh, ignoring the warning signs or symptoms. Have you found that in your practice down in Atlanta?
7: Most definitely. There are so many people who just really feel like um, this is not the kind of thing that will ever happen to me or, you know, I I just don't think I'll be in, in the same condition that my sister, my brother, or, you know, I'm slimmer or I have a more active life or I just don't think that it will ever catch up with me. And, yes, there are those who will come and say, had I just listened to the warning signs, had I just paid more attention to what was going on, had I listened to my uh, family members when they told me what to watch for. But, you know, here I am, and diabetes has captured me and and found me.
1: Seems like there gets a groove stuck in the record where people – keep going back to why on Tuesday did I not have diabetes, and now on Wednesday I do. And that stubbornness or um, uh, narrow-mindedness really stops them from taking action, like we just heard from Cindy Lou in the Diabetes What to Know community. So what, what do you want to say on that, this, uh, this idea of the big regret, you know, the big, like, question mark?
7: Um, and so often they do have that big question mark. Just don't know what pushed them over. And so um, you know, and, and that's kind of hard to answer. There are a variety of different things that may have been the cause or may have triggered. Sometimes um, you know it could be an illness, an infection, a, a stress, or stressor that came along, something that they just didn't uh, was not the body was not prepared to handle. And yes. There was no diabetes maybe a couple of months ago, and now all of a sudden you're seeing higher numbers. So, yes, I do hear that a lot.
1: All right, so let's put some people's minds at ease and just go over some of the general information we know about diabetes and why diabetes would not, and developing type 2 diabetes would not be your fault. Number one, you're hereditary. Um, General factors, uh, your genetics do play a huge role are in developing type 2 diabetes. What do you want to share on that?
7: Uh, Yes, indeed. Um, There are genetic uh, things, uh, uh, genes that will play a part in that. Also, you look at it from the standpoint that growing up with a certain lifestyle and culture uh, will predisposition you sometimes because various things that you are accustomed to doing is just the lifestyle, the way you eat, the sedentary lifestyle. Um, your age also plays a factor. When when we as we age, we have a higher risk to develop diabetes. And then right, third nearly basis, a
1: third of all people over 65 have diabetes. Um, and the National Diabetes Information and Clearinghouse recommends that anyone over age 45 should be screened for uh, diabetes.
3: Definitely, so age
1: would yes. be number two. And, and, and then uh, lifestyle, you just mentioned, would be a big one. So lifestyle could be something where I'm used, if my family is, is Saturdays for my family means ordering two pizzas and watching Netflix all day long, that is quite different from the family that wakes up to go to the soccer game, uh, take a morning exercise class. And uh, drink smoothies. I'm making that up, but you know, I'm trying to look <laughs> for a very kind of specific difference here. But that's a big factor, and the who who you're surrounded with and what their behaviors are, especially in your family, we kind of pass it down, right?
7: Absolutely, we tend to do the same things, enjoy the same type of lifestyle.
1: And then race. Uh, going back to this, this plays a huge role in it because. Uh, we now know that there's a higher disposition for Asian Americans, Latino Americans, African Americans, um, and non-Hispanic African Americans for developing type 2 diabetes.
7: Absolutely, the uh, Hispanic, the non-Hispanic African American is 77% higher than uh, the than other populations. So when you look at that in comparison, you know there there are disparities uh, depending on the race.
1: And don't you think, uh, because we're diabetic gender, you know, more women have diabetes than men, specifically as they get older with menopause and hormonal changes, not necessarily that one thing could lead to a diagnosis of diabetes, but sometimes that in itself along coupled with medications and other things could lead to that.
7: Absolutely. And I I don't want to kind of have this idiosyncrasy about females, but there is a a different approach in handling stress a lot of times. And when it comes to women, women are nurturers just by uh, nature and always feel the weight of the world on their shoulders. And so they kind of internalize sometimes a lot of things that are going on without Uh, We think men don't talk, but women really don't talk about what's going on with them. They just handle it. And so those stressors sometimes can also play a part, including the hormonal changes.
1: All right. So now um, you're going to tackle the hard question, Patricia. We've been waiting to put you for eight years. We've been waiting to put you in the hot seat.
0: Oh, my. (laughs) I'm going to
1: give it to you twice. (laughs) All right, so um, labeling people as having pre-diabetes, researchers claim, is unhelpful and unnecessary. The definition for pre-diabetes given to people uh, is that it's a cusp of type 2 diabetes and has no clinical worth. That was uh, found by a United Kingdom U.S. research team. What do you think about that?
7: Well, you know, I kind of favor the diagnosis of prediabetes because I know there have been a lot of people that I have encountered, once they have that diagnosis, they really pay attention and they kind of turn things around. We talked about sedentary lifestyles and um, the eating habits and that type of thing. Those things, you know, you can't do much about your age and your ethnicity but you can certainly kind of uh, alter the lifestyle and I do know people who have drastically changed their lifestyles once they get the diagnosis of pre-diabetes and I think it is worthy of being uh, one of those diagnoses
1: and do you think some of this regret uh, related to a diabetes diagnosis is because people's general knowledge is, of diabetes is so limited Or You know, it just seems very clear to me that no one understands how they got it or what it really means even after they're diagnosed.
7: And you're so right about that. And, yes, that does have a lot to do with the regrets because if you don't know what actually is happening in your body and you think you're at fault or some way, somehow you could have um, made this all go away, then, of course, there will be some regret that you didn't do or you didn't pay attention or you should have done something sooner. But sometimes it's inevitable that, um, you know, the genetic factors are there and diabetes is something that you could not have avoided. But, yes, that awareness factor um, is a contributor to the regret. As I always say, knowledge is power, and once you have the power of having that knowledge, then you can do something about it. So when
1: you well, know better, act-
7: you do better.
1: But actually that was a setup, because the truth is, like, if you if I had prediabetes and did nothing, then the shame and blame would come to me with the diagnosis, right? Because if if I'm – prediabetes actually sets some people up for being blamed for developing type 2 diabetes if they don't take action. So I, the question really is, like, what do you do when you're given a diagnosis of prediabetes? How should you is that just a pill like go on metformin we've heard that before that that's fairly common procedure like what should what, what would what do you think the best way to handle prediabetes from the healthcare provider to the patient should be what what is the message that should be being sent
7: education education is the message that should be sent to that person who has prediabetes Find a diabetes educator or let me refer you to a diabetes educator so that you can have a full realm of knowledge of what you need to do. And yes, sometimes pills are prescribed, and that is something that sets a person up for failure sometimes because they think, I'll take this pill and it'll go away or there's nothing on my part. You know, I have no accountability. Um, in this diagnosis because the pill is here and so when when you are given a pill it doesn't mean that you don't have to change some things and so yes education is key education and knowledge will be the power that can help a person turn that around but if they don't know then they don't change
1: no and then they don't change and then they're diagnosed with type 2 diabetes and they have an awful regret because they had that. I, I think we would also follow that conversation with type 2 diabetes and the development of complication, right? There's obviously a lot of surprise, fear, and regret associated with a type 2 diabetes, I mean with a complication diagnosis.
7: Yes, because um, most times they're feeling like, you know, I should have done something sooner, and, and that may be the case. But if there is a complication, education can also teach you how to slow the progression And there is still time to do something about it. And so many times I've encountered people who felt like because they had a relative who had such terrible outcomes that they are doomed. And so from the onset of that that diagnosis, they start feeling like there is nothing that they can do to control, but they do have control. They're in the driver's seat, and there are things that can be done. And what I'm trying to drive home is that there are so many people who don't understand how that lifestyle change can be significant.
1: Well, but this is such a slippery slope because if you put the pictures of complications on posters, people freak out and they don't agree that fear tactics will work, which is as a motivator, and I fall into that camp. However, then if you put a bunch of, like, uh, people in proportionate weight eating uh, fatty foods or, you know, Smiling as a as a indulge in something and you talk moderation, it also is confusing to people you don 't know which way to go I mean even you know it 's just a very confusing it 's a very confusing thing and i I think people like Cindy Lou and what she 's doing and Dr. Lori and the research and the resources they 're providing are great, but at some point it really comes down to you talking with your doctor and having some straight talk and someone really kind of like explaining just that it affects your pancreas, what the job of your pancreas is, how your pancreas works, and what you can do to make it work better, or how you could compensate for your pancreas not being able to work as well as it once did.
7: Absolutely. And sometimes that is not possible in the office setting, in the little time that is um, taken in an appointment. So education is key. And diabetes educators, dietitians, Pharmacists, nurses, all of those disciplines, it's a, inter, uh, it's a disciplinary uh, group who will come together and provide that education so that that person can be more aware of the function and pathophysiology of the pancreas and how that pancreas over time may change in the amount of insulin that you're producing even with, with that diagnosis. And so a lot of education comes into play. And the shame and the regret may be there, but I think um, people can be more aware of what their bodies have done and not that they were the failure.
1: I love it. I think that's great. I can't believe it's taken us eight years to talk about regret, but we've done it. And uh, to have the final word, Patricia, we're going to invite the one woman who always has the wisest comments to make. That's my mom. Welcome to the show, Mama Rose Marie. Well,
8: Mama thank Rose Marie. you. Thank you for having me.
0: Bye.
1: Right. Well, we spent the last hour and a mm-hmm. half talking about no regrets, with um, in musical inspiration from Edith Piaf. You just heard Patricia talking a little bit about how education yeah, plays a big role, in and uh, knowledge is power, and putting it into action.
8: Right. I heard that. That was wonderful. She had a lot of good advice there. So, and I'm wondering you what like your thoughts
1: have? are on um, living without regret. And regret?
8: Well, it, my thoughts are right within my um, diabetes uh, tip for the evening. And um, this, my mother, your diabetes advice for tonight is to make sure that we live our lives fully and completely without regret. One way to do this is to turn those failures into stepping stones. That you choose to learn from and grow. It has been it has been noted that Thomas Edison failed one thousand times before he succeeded in creating the light bulb. Can you just imagine what it would have been if he did not do this? Our days would be all nights, all the time. We'd be living in the dark. So a failure always means it's a stepping stone in disguise we never know how long we have so let's start living a life free of regrets today and every day so that's my advice for july 12th or june 12th i'm sorry june 12th
1: well and do you know what july 10th will be (laughs)
8: They'll be the next one (laughs) Our 8th year
1: anniversary Podcast and both of you ladies And Lorraine have been a part of the show For a long time I would regret Not uh, congratulating you Now ahead of time for just Being a part of Everyone's diabetes lives for all These years it's been incredible
8: Well thank you For having all of us it has been incredible It's been wonderful
1: what do you think? Like, what do you think? Where would you like to go in year eight? <laughs> what topic have we not covered that you think we should cover? So we we, we go forward with no regrets.
7: Oh, my goodness. You know, Max, I have, um, since we did the body image uh, sessions, I really like that topic, and I think we need to explore a little more, a little deeper. All right, volume. I think and that mom, has a lot do you, to do with the shame and regrets. Mom, do you have a topic I, you want to
8: cover more of? Well, I agree with um, with Patricia because I still, I have never forgotten that poem that uh, Lorraine uh, told us on or recited to us on the program and it was about body image and it just made such an impression on me and I'm sure it made an impression on several other people. Obviously it made it on Patricia also. So um
0: The beauty and the uh, beach maybe, inspired by Esther Williams.
8: Yeah. Yeah, I think she did a great job and, and like Patricia, I think that's one of the things I think is very, very important for people with um living with diabetes and also um People who may have a weight problem and and an image problem, so um i I think maybe we could dwell a little bit more on that
1: and i um, <laughs> I feel like if I say it, I'm gonna have to do it so. I don't want to have that regret. I would like to do a show on the price of insulin. I just think it's skyrocketing. It's out of control. I would just like to have a couple thought leaders talk about that. That would be important to me, as well as the topics that both of you brought up. I would like to. I think that would be interesting to go um, a little bit more in depth into that because you read so much about it today, and I don't. I, and I know it's getting covered, but I would just like to get some of the um, go back to the beginning and 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 talk about the discovery of insulin and where it was going and how it's developed and and why this is happening today and why the market you know why it's become almost in many instances too expensive for people to stay alive so um that would be my topic
8: well that would Something be a good to look forward awesome. to in
1: year number eight. well thank you both mm-hmm. for being on the podcast and i want to thank all my guests as well as you for listening for the past 7 years I'm so grateful to be part of Your Diabetes Wellness Life. Next month is our eighth anniversary podcast. Please subscribe to DivaBedic's e-newsletter at divabetic.org or visit DivaBetix Facebook pages. And check out my videos on our YouTube channel. I just reposted my visit to the mermaid parade, which always makes me laugh. Um, Remember, every diva and every dude has an entourage, and I'm so glad to be part of you. Let's get happy and stay healthy together. And come to Fairfax. Virginia on September 16th, when I do my, uh, when Diva Beck does our largest uh, Diabetes Outreach event of the year at Mosaic Central Farm Markets, we're going to close the show uh, with truly one of my favorite songs ever. Here's Edith Piaf's most famous song and my personal favorite, La Vie En Rose, courtesy of Sony Music.
2: Il est entré dans mon cœur Une part de bonheur Dont je connais la cause Mais lui pour moi, moi pour lui dans la vie Il me l'a dit nuit d'amour a plus fini, un grand bonheur qui prend sa place, des ennuis, des chagrins s'effacent, heureux heureux à en mourir. Quand il me prend dans ses bras, s'il me parle tout bas, je vois la vie en rond de mots de tous les jours et ça me fait quelque chose Il est entré dans mon cœur une part de bonheur dont je connais la cause C'est toi pour moi, moi pour toi